Thank you for listening to Room 9, my daddy's podcast. Hope you enjoy. If you would like to help Room 9, please visit their support page. You can listen to Room 9 on your favorite podcast listening platform. Don't forget to visit our Instagram and Facebook page. Please like it. Room 9, if you better yourself, you better the world. Hey, everybody. Man, we are just pumping out episodes like crazy. This is what a social distancing period does to you. Although I will say I've not been great, and I think you regular listeners know why I don't like doing remote podcasts. It's a big trade-off. I can get a lot of different guests on, some really cool guests from all across the world, but I can't stand the sound quality. I'm just too anal about sound quality, and it drives me nuts. But here's another episode. In this episode, I have a repeat guest who was almost on exactly a year ago. And this is the Vice President of Residential Treatment at Horizon Health Services, Brandy Vandermark Murray. And we have a great conversation on how Horizon Health has just adapted and evolved over this period of time of getting telehealth out there and making sure everybody's safe and getting all the equipment they need and everything else that is necessary for a place like this to be able to continue providing the very important services they need to provide for a community. You guys will enjoy this and it just kind of lets people know how these companies have been kind of changing up and going with the flow so that is all i got for you all links are below for horizon health services and all that other jazz and be ready and be prepared for more and amazing room nine episodes okay i love you guys as always be encouraged stay strong and speak up when you're struggling all right peace Because we've done a previous podcast on residential. Yes, we did. I was just looking that up because I was like, when did we do that? And that was May 20th last year. So just over a year ago was oh yeah when we uh, first sat down. Yeah. So that's, a, yeah, it was a good time. And then I've done one with Jeremy. Is he still there? Mm-hmm. He how's, is. Yep. He's still the director. How, yeah. How's he doing? How's our things going there? Good. Busy as usual. But no, I mean, it's interesting this time because it's, we're screening for COVID while we're bringing people in. So. <laughs> It's a heightened level of anxiety that already was already there. Oh my gosh. Yes, I know. I know a lot of people are kind of getting all out of sorts and kind of struggling with um, what to do. And now you have all these, this protest stuff going on yeah. and things are, things are a little intense. They are. It's been a rough 2020. <laughs> yeah. Which is funny because I was just talking with um, Christine, my girlfriend the other day, and I'm like, this has been a great 2020 for me. I'm I've already made more money with my company than I have all of last year. And, you know, things are just kind of looking up for me. It's just totally different when you don't turn on the news and constantly watch it. Because I'm like, I didn't even know at first. She's like, I got a text from her. And she was like, well, things are getting crazy when they put that first curfew on. Yeah. And I'm like, what do you mean there's a curfew because of protests for COVID and wanting to get the economy? She's like, no, for this George Floyd. And I'm like. And even though there's protests going on for this. So that's how out of the loop I am when it comes to um, the news and everything else. 
Well, it's hard. I mean, not everything's all bad. It's just things that have happened have been so big. It's hard to not have it be part of your thought process day to day. It is. Yeah. Yeah. It's been um, pretty, pretty intense. I know my mom was having some anxiety over it. Yeah. A lot of people are for sure. Yeah. Have you seen now kind of there as far as like Terrace House and everywhere else have the residents and the clients, have they kind of been affected by it? Obviously, I know the COVID thing, but everything else, is it have you seen heightened anxiety a lot? I think that there's, I, w- I wouldn't say heightened. I think that there is definitely feeling in the air of sadness. And I don't know if it's, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is I, other than sadness, because I think people are really, you know, trying the best they can and um, it just keeps happening. And so it doesn't matter if it happened again. It's just this, nothing's going to change. And I don't know, the past few days, my the patients, I think, have been just having some honest conversations, which I always encourage. And staff have been having some honest conversations, which we always encourage. And I think that's a good start. But most of the patients we serve have a pretty high baseline of anxiety and depression. And so I don't want to say it's more or less. I think it's something that they always kind of have. But all the conversations I've had in the past 48 hours, I will say, have been respectful and hopeful and in a positive direction. Yeah, I guess you have to kind of keep that hope there or else it is frustrating, though. I mean, I feel like history is constantly repeating. I mean, even with the COVID thing, I remember it was actually probably a few weeks before it all started. I was watching this, I think the documentary series is called Pandemic on Netflix. Oh, yeah. I started. I couldn't finish it. Yeah. It it was too much for me. Yeah. And people go around the world and have been trying to warn people of stuff like this. And we just ignore it, ignore it. And same thing with like the environment. And we always end up, instead of preparing and holding things off, we just want to react to when something happens. And it's like, eventually that's going to really, really screw us all over. Yeah. No, I agree. Things are, things are intense. Things are crazy. But mm-hmm. how are, how are is everything holding up with horizons and with all your inpatients, outpatients. Yeah, sure. Well, I think in residential in particular, I will tell you the first in March when things kind of first started to happen, there was so much unknown. And Mm -hmm. so with all that unknown for us in particular, we were serving a large population and, you know, some of our programs were more contained. We didn't have a ton of people coming in and out and other programs like detox and inpatient, you know, we do have people coming in and out because they're seeking treatment every day. So in March early on, I think that there was a lot of what do we do? You know, how do we make sure we keep serving our population safely from a COVID perspective and then from an addiction and mental health perspective. So in residential, we did make changes. We slowed things down quite a bit for a few weeks, you know, with the front door, making space for our patients to not necessarily be right on top of each other, doing groups, getting things like PPE, you know, like I know there's a lot of uh, attention on hospitals as there should be, you know, they're the frontline workers, but even like us working with patients who are, you know, coming in off the street and might have symptoms. And so just getting all those things prepared took some time, but we have a really strong management team and we have a really strong um, executive team. And so we were really organized and thoughtful and we really just moved quickly to make sure we could do things as safe as we possibly can. So for a period, I did slow things down and then we kind of learned. We learned like what the symptoms were. We learned how to get tested. Could you get tested? You know, what did quarantine mean? What did isolation mean? We learned all these things. We put systems in place to be more prepared. And then we started saying, you know what? encouraging people to come back in and to seek out treatment. Because I think for a while, mostly in April, people 
and still now in May and June, they're scared to be around other people sometimes because mm -hmm. there's this fear of getting sick. And so what we saw was people were a little bit more hesitant to come into a residential inpatient detox facility, just like you saw in our community. People weren't going to the ERs for medical conditions because there was fear. So while we kind of slowed down the spread, which was our goal, we also saw that the patients that were coming in, their symptoms were so much more severe. And part of it was because they were isolating, they were home alone, they weren't seeking out the supports, they weren't around people who maybe would call them out or, you know, intervene a little bit quicker. They also were anxious and depressed. And so their coping skill of using increased. And so all those mm -hmm. things combined, the people coming in just felt more severe in their addiction process. So that kind of started to occur. And then probably through May, you started seeing people reach out a little bit more in coming in and in the door, I see people coming in a little bit more over the past few weeks. And so we still try to do things as safe as we possibly can. We're screening patients, you know, upon intake, we're screening symptoms, you know, minimally twice a day, temperatures and respiratory symptoms and still practicing social distancing. All of our staff wear PPE if they're by patients and patients are required to wear masks if they're around other patients now. That's really an interesting kind of experience, but like we're teaching them also universal safety and precautions for their overall health. It's not just about addiction. And so the patients have been incredible though coming in. They're very grateful for A, the services as they usually are anyway. Mm -hmm. But now with that isolation and stuff and being able to get that support and they appreciate the safety measures, even though they're frustrating. I mean, no one loves wearing a mask, but <laughs> no, at the don't. end of the day, like they're, they've been pretty respectful. It took a little bit of um, behavior modification and things like that, but they're doing well. Our outpatient is, is interesting because, you know, we went really quickly to telehealth and telephonic support. And so accessibility for those who are struggling was actually increased through this. You know, there was no barriers of transportation, no barriers sometimes of scheduling or childcare. And so we saw an increase of people utilizing the telephonic and the telehealth services, and which is great. We want people to um, reach out and experience that support. And then we have, but we still see incidents happening in the community more so. And it is sometimes hard to engage patients as much if they're really, really struggling. So we're trying to figure out that balance of like how we do really great quality telehealth work and patients, you know, are they reaching out for support and things like that in their community with limited resources right now? right? So even things like self-help meetings, most of those are virtual. And for a lot of our patients, that's a huge support for them. Church, right? Huge mm -hmm. support for people. So we're really trying to make sure that we're using the virtual model as much as we can, but people miss connection and they miss people and that we can't duplicate. We're just trying to figure out the best we can right now and maintain safety. So that's kind of what's going on with Horizon right now. We're, you know, using this as an opportunity to be more innovative, but really make sure we're reaching the patients and providing quality care through different modalities. Yeah, I think it definitely it's definitely adjustment missing that person to person connection for yeah. sure. Have you found um cuz I've talked to several different people, have you found at all that I don't know if you've heard from people that you've had more people opening up and being more vulnerable? through telehealth? So it's interesting. I have patients who, so in residential treatment, they're doing groups still in person, mm -hmm. right? And so they get an opportunity to still be with their community, just six feet apart kind of thing. But we do have patients who are linked with uh, mental health services or, you know, different groups. And I have had a couple patients who have said that they felt, especially if they have a lot of anxiety, that they were able to open up a little bit more because they didn't feel people looking at them 
right? In mm-hmm. the group or they felt like there was really no kind of risk of speaking up. And so I've heard the pros and cons for sure. And that's very individualized. We have people who um, have reported, for example, and this is like, this is patient report. Cause we did say like, what are some of the, you know, silver linings of this? We're mm-hmm. trying to also look at those opportunities. And I did have a few patients who said, so in residential, we don't do any family visitations anymore because part of reducing risk for COVID is to limit foot traffic. You don't want as many people coming in and you don't want people having more exposure. And that was a really difficult decision, but we made that in March. And so we've gone months where people haven't had in-person visits with their family members and we have heard family programming. And so a lot of our patients we have said, you can use your phones. We gave more access to personal cell phone use for FaceTiming, for using phone. And a few patients said, you know, I, my relationship has improved because I'm having more conversation. I'm forced to have a conversation now versus filling my visit with maybe going and watching a movie or going shopping and kind of keeping busy. Mm. And so that downtime has allowed people a moment of pause and with children home now from school, like people are home when you call, right? Yep. So I had a couple of people who said, you know, my relationships have really improved because I have opportunity to have meaningful conversations. That doesn't necessarily replace that they miss the fact that they want to physically be with their loved ones. But it, you know, when people are in recovery, communication is one of the skills we tried to build. So this is really practicing forcing people to practice it. Yeah, it's totally kind of forcing you to keep that conversation going because it gets awkward pretty quickly on a phone with somebody and there's silence. And people are asking more questions. I mean, I don't know about you, Sean, but people in my personal life too have said more things like, how are you? Like, how do you feel? Like people Mm -hmm. are asking questions with like more intention as opposed to what are you doing? right? Because that seems like it could have been a question that was more popular. We're now, no one's really doing anything. And so the question is, how are you? Which is different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's completely different. Unfortunately, I don't have a personal life, so I haven't had too many of those calls, but... Yeah. Well, and the thing is, is it's not even the call. Sometimes it's, it's the text messages that you get. Sometimes yeah. just, how are you? Or, you know, simple, I'm thinking of you, you know, like it felt like those increased. And I hope that continues with some of our patients and our staff, you know, just that level of empathy that like, we all are going through this challenge together. So in residential treatment, the patients are going through this together. And that does have a level of connection that they're like, they feel safe, they feel connected. Yeah, it's hard, but that empathy definitely has been impacted. Yeah, I feel like that would bring a group of people together for sure. Have you had to like separate anybody in rooms? I mean, I know it's always kind of been two to a room anyway. We did. We usually, well, it depends, right? Certain programs, we we reduced our census to make space. But what we did is we went through our rooms to make sure that like, for example, minimally was six feet apart sleeping space. Mm-hmm. And it is, so that was good. But we did designate certain rooms in our facilities as isolation rooms, which are completely empty. And they're used for if for someone were to potentially have a symptoms, right? So if someone were to get a fever, we would put them in this isolation room and monitor them and things like that. So we are required to do that. That was something that kind of came out early on and we did that, you know, and that was a challenge for us. I'm not going to lie because we were a full capacity facility and now we have to come up with space to put people in potentially. So we've accommodated that and we do that. Um, We do more groups. So for example, we had to make the groups smaller. So Mm -hmm. as opposed to two or three groups running at the time, we might have more because we're spreading them out and doing things like that. With the weather being nicer, you know what the campus looks like. We have outdoor space. So we're encouraging people to do things outside, you know, have group outside, do your counseling session outside if you want to. There's nothing that prevents us from doing stuff like that. So we're fortunate at Horizon Village because we have that space. 
which people sometimes love and some people hate. But for this circumstance, that space really has helped us. They can still go to the gym. They can still go play volleyball. They can do all those things. They're not literally in a building the whole entire time. Yeah, I was very, very thankful I was there during the warm season. Yeah. As, as much as I was annoyed, I missed my summer. I was very thankful I could go outside and play guitar and and be mm-hmm. alone. I enjoy being alone. Yeah, I, c- I can imagine it's been a, a huge adjustment for you guys. And how have how have you how have like your employees and the counselors and everybody how have they adjusted? Did they have to do have to Are they working more? Are they working less? Well, I think it's twofold. So in residential, we are essential. Well, we're all essential workers, healthcare mm-hmm. workers, right? But when I say essential, like we didn't have the option to go remote, right? Our patients are still in the building, so we go to work. So the first few weeks, along with the rest of the community, I think everyone was just trying to assess like what was real, what was not, how contagious is this? You know, how do I get it? Like everyone was kind of, it was information overload. Like Mm -hmm. you really didn't know what to do. So there was a lot of questions. And so strategically what we did is we really increased our communication to our employees. We had increased communication through, you know, corporate calls, emails, check-ins. It was so much talking and planning and making sure people were on the same page. A lot of our staff were grateful to come to work because that sense of normalcy helped them kind of get outside of what was going on in the rest of the world. And even though there is the risk, anytime you're kind of around people, we also learned ways to reduce risk. And so we kind of kept saying, like, if you are practicing things like wearing masks and washing hands and social distancing, like the risk significantly reduced. So our staff went through that uh, normal level of like anxiety to, okay, I'm, I'm good. And now I don't want to say it's business as usual. It's different, but we know what we can do to keep ourselves as safe as we possibly can. What we did see is we saw, you know, increases in overdose and we saw increases in deaths in Erie County. And so for a lot of our staff, you know, there was a level of sadness and anxiety around not serving as many people as we possibly could because you saw that happening too, Mm -hmm. right? So people were avoiding coming into treatment maybe because of COVID, but their addiction was taking them to a dark place. And unfortunately, we lost a lot of community members. And so our whole mission is to help people, right? And so we need to make sure we're here and we're present to do that. And so anyone that comes in is an opportunity for us to help someone save their life. So my staff has been incredible and they talk just like when we're talking about like transparency and stuff like that. So you check in with your your colleagues, you take some time off when you need it, you laugh, you know, you do those things you can do, but they're, they're good. They're really good. And I figure like healthcare workers in general, they kind of run into the fire, right? Yeah. Like that's yep. kind of what we do. An addiction treatment specialist, you know, in, in the addiction world and mental health world, I feel like it's very similar. Like the crisis is something that we're used to. This just was a little bit more personal probably for some people. Yeah. I've, I mean, I've had several people. I've had one buddy who kind of really had a big slip up for a couple of weeks and he kind of got back on track, but I've had several people call me and they're really struggling just because their whole routine of working and going to the gym was all cut off and their whole life was changed. So there's been a lot of adjustments and I have yet heard those. I think it's been Erie County, Chautauqua, Wyoming County. They're all kind of sprung up over the last, you know, few Mm -hmm. months since this has all happened. And so as far as like you're dealing with a lot of your people who are, I guess, say outpatient, have you had to do, how are you guys doing groups? Is that all kind of over Zoom? Have you seen an increase of like kind of anxiety go up with that? 
Yeah, I would say symptomology across the board for mental health and addiction has gone up for most of our patients. We are doing virtual groups. We have started that up in using, I think, a Zoom platform and some different methods. We have done a lot more telephonic and telehealth type stuff. Mm -hmm. um, we are scripting things like medications and those things are still being delivered to people and psych visits are still happening virtually and recovery coaches are still reaching out to patients telephonic and virtually. We're scripting things like naloxone to get them to patients and we'll have the pharmacies deliver them. So we're trying to use as much as we can as possible. But I would say, you know, across the board, patients have been pretty candid about how much they're struggling. That doesn't mean that just because they're candid, that it's going to stop it, <laughs> yeah. right? And so we, we know that there's been an increase in incidence. And the other thing across the state that has happened in the past few weeks is we've seen an increase in overdoses related to cocaine as well. And I know that last week we lost three people in the community, I believe in North Tonawanda related to cocaine overdoses, mm -hmm. laced with probably things like fentanyl. And so we see that happening, not just in Western New York, but definitely throughout the state and people talk about it. And so we, we keep advocating and making sure that people realize that hopefully COVID, we get a vaccination and hopefully we see change and all that. But we still have this crisis of addiction and mental health that is was here before COVID. It's being exacerbated during this time. And we have to be here to be able to help people when they're ready to reach out, because I do fear that it's going to be way worse in the next few months than it was maybe three months ago. Yeah, I think with the fentanyl, things are getting crazy. And it can just, it, it always like, I was laughing because my mom was asking me the other day when I was over about it. And I'm like, it makes no sense to put a downer in an upper. And it's just super bizarre. And sometimes my mind, what is like, it's almost like people are intentionally trying to kill people. Yeah. Or yeah. intentionally trying to get people more addicted. I don't yeah. know. It, it's, it's interesting because it's not, like I said, localized to Western New York. Mm -hmm. I know the Capital District had a significant increase in those as well. But the danger is definitely out there. And that's the concern is that we have people who are more vulnerable because they're struggling. And they may not even realize what they're taking. Yeah, it's crazy. It is definitely really Russian roulette every time you are stepping out and into that world. Have you guys had, have you closed down a lot of your buildings? We do have um, staff who are working in our buildings. And so while patients maybe aren't coming on site, um, we still have staff that are supportive that are type staff that are going to be present because, you know, they're getting records ready or, you know, taking phone calls and patients are still calling. We are doing in some locations, you know, IMs for medications, like those services still have to continue. But most of our staff and outpatient, because they can work remotely, we've done our part in trying to make sure we're keeping our community safe with having people just stay home if they're mm -hmm. capable of doing that. And unfortunately, we have a lot of things we can do that way. And so our facilities are open, but most of them are not taking patients. Nobody's really kind of coming in. Yeah. And have you, have you seen a lot of people who, I mean, this is not something I really thought of up until, you know, my mom's a teacher, my girlfriend's a teacher, my sister's a teacher, and they all talked about the whole distance learning and how so many people actually literally don't have access to the internet yeah. as shocking as that is. Mm -hmm. Have you seen a lot of people who maybe don't have phones? How have you adjusted to that? Yeah, no, um, my husband's a teacher and he teaches every day from our basement. So <laughs> I know how challenging it's been to do remote learning for the teachers and for the students. But mm -hmm. we actually did a survey with our patients. So the executive order allowed 
us to do telephonic and telehealth. And so previous to COVID, you never could bill or do telephonic services clinically. And so that changed with an executive order, right? And so we did a survey recently, and I actually just saw the results this week. And so it really was about I think around like 18% that didn't have access to those things such as a cell phone or Wi-Fi. So it's not as large as one may think, but it mm -hmm. still is a definitely a population that um, we need to be mindful of and make sure we're trying to engage in different ways because there's probably other social determinants that they have going on if they don't have those things as well. I've seen in the community, there's been a lot of uh, community organizations and members who have done like Wi-Fi hotspots or free Wi-Fi and the city of Buffalo has put out more Wi-Fi and things like that. But we do have to make sure we're engaging those patients that don't have those resources. Yeah, I know. It's crazy to think sometimes in 2020, there's still people who who don't have that, but it's definitely a reality that, mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of us, I guess, you know, me, I had to really, I realized how much I take for granted when I kind of heard that from people. Yeah. Because there's a lot of people who really don't have that access. And well, it's not even just access to Wi Fi and phone, it's also like equipment mm -hmm. and other things like that. So, you know, not everyone has, for example, like a laptop or a computer, yeah. you know, and so looking at stuff like that. But for the most part, a large portion of our population did, but it was about like right around there, 18%. Did you guys have to like supply any of your employees to work from home with computers did, yeah. and tablets? We did. We, like I said, we had a um, really organized management team and an executive team that we were already kind of trying telehealth before COVID. Um, we were, you know, going into that kind of model of offering another modality to engage people and provide resources. So we were already kind of in the, the midst of transitioning a little bit of that. And then when it happened, it was kind of like you just prepare for it. You know, this week happens and you get everything going and everyone has their to-do list. And our staff were deployed with either materials, if they had material, some people had them and we took surveys to see what people needed. So yeah, we were really fortunate that we were able to get the resources out to our staff to make a really smooth transition. And it took probably like a week or two. But, you know, for the most part, everyone has what they need. And we do have some staff who are able to come into the clinics and use the materials and stuff that we have inside the clinic to still do their mm -hmm. remote work. Yeah, good deal. I know it's been it's been awesome to see all of you guys, Horizons, and I've talked with Spectrum and, you know, Evergreen and just how you guys have all totally adjusted and are still there to support the community. Because I know it's been, it hasn't been easy for a lot of people and Obviously, this is a huge necessity mm -hmm. for even more so than it was, you know, in back in the beginning of March, because yeah. people are really, really struggling to be alone. I mean, so many people are completely alone. And I think, you know, we're not used to that. Well, even people who I think maybe didn't identify as having a mental health disorder or identify as having a substance use disorder are realizing that, you know, when we are challenged to the degrees that we've been challenged that I have, you know, people who are becoming depressed or have more anxiety who are like, I never had to experience this level of symptoms. And so we do have people who are reaching out who maybe traditionally never even thought of themselves as having a mental health disorder because there is a, there is, you know, acute symptomology. Mm -hmm. You can be a situation can cause you a lot of duress. And I think a lot of people during this time are experiencing that. And so I do encourage people, even if you're thinking, well, I'm not really sure if I'm depressed, there's no harm in getting an assessment or at least talking to someone and working through some things. Yeah. And I feel like if, <laughs> if you have to say, I don't think I'm depressed. 
Yeah. It's, it's probably worth going and talking with somebody. <laughs> yeah. And people don't realize the benefits of taking some time for yourself, you know, or, you know, just having that opportunity to take away the stigma of asking for help, you know, and people, if they reaching out on the phone right now, let's say you're like, okay, well, I don't have time for that. Or, you know, I don't have this for that. Like now you literally, it's the easiest possibility. You can just call someone and make an appointment today and talk to them someone on the phone. Yeah. It's never which, been easier. Which is great. Yeah. That's, that's awesome to have. In like the beginning of all this, did you guys have trouble getting the masks and all the protective gear that you needed? Cause I know a lot of people have had to get yeah. over that challenge. Um, it wasn't super easy. And I will tell you in residential, it was a priority for us because we knew if we were going to remain open and work with patients, we had to protect our staff and we had to be able to protect our patients. And so we really hustled and worked with our counties, Niagara County and Erie County. We worked with suppliers. It took a lot of research and manpower to try to get some things. And there are some things that are still not easy to get, such as like gowns, you know, but it, over the past, unfortunately, I want to say two months, it's gotten easier. But the first few weeks, it did. It felt like you were trying to just get bottled water for like a hurricane. <laughs> like you were like, I don't know where to get a mask. But we all felt that. I mean, if you remember the first few days, like looking on Amazon to try to buy a mask or hand sanitizer. It was crazy. It was crazy, right? And so we we were proactive. We've been fortunate that we've been able to stay ahead. But here's the other thing is, is that we don't know how long this is going to go on. And so this just we just keep putting it into our inventory and reaching out to our the people in the community that can help us. But it, it wasn't easy for sure. No, I don't think anybody I don't think it was easy, like you said, for anybody even at home trying to order some stuff off Amazon has been it's been pretty mm -hmm. intense. I and haven't seen a Clorox wipe in two months for the grocery <laughs> store. So and I don't want to be a hoarder, but I literally haven't even seen them. So Yeah, that's that's an, it's so funny. I I never under I didn't get the toilet paper thing at all, but yeah. I'm not sure what that was all about, but yeah, I was, <laughs> I don't even know what to say about that. That was very, that made me scratch my head a lot. What are, what are some of the, the kind of end this and pushes towards, obviously it's all been positive, but a good, a very good positive note. What are like some of the big things that you have seen that have been awesome, whether it's the way people have changed and how people have stepped up? You know, what is it that you've seen that we can kind of end with a positive note? I think that the positive is that if we can keep the conversation about the importance of mental health awareness and addiction awareness. So while the numbers have gone up and that's not positive, there are more people just acknowledging mental health and addiction. Mm -hmm. They're just talking about it a little bit more. And I think people are aware a little bit more about the importance of community. So while we miss our neighbors and our family and our friends, you know, for me and for the things I hear from some of my colleagues and family is that there's an appreciation for the people around you more so probably than a few months ago because you just weren't as present. So that for me is probably the positive. And personally, I'm, I'm very grateful that I continue to be able to work and serve this population. And, you know, I think that it's important to get more resources as we move forward, but I'm grateful every day that we have the opportunity to keep helping the patients that are coming in and reaching out for support. I really hope that as a community, as a country, whatever, even as like a whole world, I really hope we can kind of all come out with a better appreciation and a greater appreciation for community and people. Cause I don't, mm -hmm. I think we tend to forget a lot how, you know, much we are social creatures and need that, that contact and that time with other people. I think we end up really missing that connection. 
Yeah. That is definitely, I think, one of the biggest things everybody is struggling with in general. And I think when you said that's so important too, is people talking about it more when it comes to mental health and when it comes to substance use, that people are just talking about it. I Googled it the other day, um, the number one way to end stigma. And you go down Google and look at every website and almost on every list, number one is just talk about it. Just yeah. talk about it. Just speak up, and kind of brought bring me to brought me to where I want to go with even Room Nine and the company is to really create a a channel where people are can tell their stories and how they overcame what they were struggling with. And I'm happy. I just I don't know if you know I moved into some video production now, and mm-hmm. I really want to start developing a community of that where people can all go and share their stories. And I think that is it. Something it seems so simple too. Just talk about what you're struggling with. Talk about what you're going through. How did you overcome it? You know, where are you at? And yet so many of us struggle with it. Yeah. I don't I don't know. I'm hoping I'm hoping really this kind of whole situation brings us all to that point where we are willing to talk about more what we're going through and struggling with. Mm-hmm. I, I don't no, know. I agree. Have you have you seen have you heard have people been kind of like stepping up and being more open with everything or is that kind patience? of hit or miss? Yeah. 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 I think that patience Well, I think when you come into treatment, you know, you're all in different stages. Mm -hmm. So for some patients, they get to stages of being more open. I I think going back to kind of what I said earlier, I think more patients are seeing someone next to them and asking, how are you? And really listening a little bit more. And that allows the person next to you to open up because, you know, it takes a lot of courage to say, I need help. And it might take less courage if someone says, do you need help? Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think I see more people kind of just just checking in with each other, you know, and doing those things. And that allows the opportunity for people to open up a little bit more in either groups or in one on one conversations or, you know, even just with while there's not necessarily like hugging and things like that, but just saying, you know what, I heard what you said and thank you. Like simple things like that can go a long way for people to then open up more. I would say sometimes people man- struggle managing their emotions. And so in residential treatment, they're opening up more, but they're scared, they're angry, they're anxious, they're missing people. And so some of that comes out too. And mm-hmm. so people, you have to be able to then tolerate differences a little bit more <laughs> when people are frustrated. So I would say there's some conflict management that's definitely happening, which can be healthy. And so all of that is good work when you're working on communication and coping skills. You don't have to just be talking about your feelings you have to be talking about what's really going on in your mm-hmm. life and that brings up some stuff that was a long-winded answer for you <laughs> no that was great I, and I think you really hit it on the head when you when you mentioned a little bit ago how not what are you doing how are you doing and I think that mm-hmm. says a lot for the power of language and how that can really make somebody feel comfortable as opposed to just like a dry empty question what are you doing and it's so different like I emailed somebody about setting up some podcasts and I just said I hope you're doing well. Hope everything's okay. And she was just grateful for that as opposed Mm -hmm. to, I need this, I need that, you know. And I think that can be something if we pay more attention to the language we use Mm -hmm. and just switch that up, you know, from how are you or what are you to how are you. And I think that's a a very important thing, very much. So, any kind of final thoughts here to wrap up, Brandy, that people, you want people to know? I know 
you guys are still accepting patients and we clients. Are every day. And... We're open seven days a week. You know, my, my final thought for you always, Sean, is just make sure you reach out for help. You know, Horizons is open and we're willing. And if for some reason, you know, there's a barrier, you know, I think now is the time that we can help you work through those barriers. And just remember, like as a community, like it's important for us to take care of each other. And Horizons has been part of our community for over 45 years. And, you know, we really want to make sure we continue to make our community healthy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, what always comes to my mind, too, is that Brene Brown TED Talks when she talked about courage and the Latin word and the root of it really means to tell your story with your whole heart and to mm -hmm. be willing to, you know, sucker up and be, have the courage and bravery to say, hey, I'm struggling. Hey, I struggled with this. I need help with that. And I mean, I found as one of the biggest things I've learned throughout my recovery from my addiction was to get rid of my pride and just ask for some darn help. <laughs> yeah. Because it can be challenging. So, well, thank you very much for joining me, Brandy. No, no problem. So I will, uh, I will stay in touch with you. I will obviously stay in touch with Christina and all that other jazz. So, no, I appreciate it. Thank you, Sean. Yeah, it's always a pleasure. It's kind of crazy. I was just when I looked at the date, I was like, oh, we did uh, our first podcast almost a year ago. Yeah, we'll have to put it on the record for next year. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so May, May and June, we'll have to remember so, that. <laughs> sounds good. All, all right. right, Brandy, take it easy. I'll talk to you later. All right, bye, all Sean. Right, bye.